0: Great question, there's a lot in that. Resistance priming is essentially the use of, of resistance training, some form of resistance training with the the goal of enhancing performance. Now resistance priming typically we see in practice, it's there's not a lot of research on it yet, but typically we see in practice is appears as people doing small, typically their power focus sessions. Either the day of the game. So if it's a night game, it might be in the morning or the day before a game, potentially. So, and the researchers looked at everything from about six hours to 32 hours.
1: Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean and I'm your host and today my guest is Vince Kelly. He's the a currently Associate Professor of Sports Science, Strength and Conditioning at the Queensland University of Technology, and our key topic of discussion today is resistance priming for game day performance. For those tuning into this live chat, our mission here at Prepare Like a Pro is to empower aspiring athletes and staff with practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community. If you like the show, please show your support by following us on Instagram and subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome Vince. Thanks for jumping on mate.
0: Oh thanks for having me.
1: For those that aren't aware of your background do you mind providing a, a bit of a yeah, background on, on what you've done throughout the industry of, of strengthening and dishing?
0: Yeah I hope I don't have to go too far back but lots of people I guess probably weren't aware that with it being I guess an AFL, AFL- focused podcast my first S&C role was was in AFL in, oh, there in Queensland. There's a you know, a new competition that was being developed for elite under 18s. And I was kind of at the end of my university career and got to start with that. And between myself and a mate, we got 500 bucks for the whole season. That's uh, right. Yeah. Hasn't changed much in <laughs> yeah. 20 plus years. But from that, you know, that was a regional representative team. And then I put my hand up to help out with the state team. And within two weeks in AFL in Queensland, people are always going back to Melbourne. So, Their fitness coach left, and that provided an opportunity for me to to take over. So, you know, that's I guess my first piece of advice for younger people is, you know, always put your hand up at the next level because you never know the opportunities that might come up. So from there, my, my I guess, playing background was rugby union. So I worked in it with a couple of rugby union teams. I worked with some other, I guess, state sporting bodies, Tennis Queensland, for example. And that provided me some opportunities to work, get a role within the Queensland Academy of Sport, particularly in their tennis program. And then from that, worked with a few other sports, women's hockey and and cycling. And we're, we're zipping through because I guess seven years post- finishing my undergraduate degree I got my first full-time role in strength conditioning so my my goal was a full-time role in in rugby union and at the time there were essentially 3 full-time S&C coaches in Australia so I had to leave the country to get a, a full-time job so you know while there's there's more opportunities now, I think there's also more people looking for for work. But yeah, my next role was with Auckland Rugby, a bit of a powerhouse in their in the rugby scene, working in their their academy. It was a newly developed position for their academy. and then their their coach then got a role as the head of Fiji Rugby, and I was fortunate enough to to go and live in Fiji for a couple of years, working with their national team, came back staying in rugby. Another kind of startup was, was the Western Force. They were a new team in Australia and, and had a role with them for 12 months, which was combined with a Rugby Australia role, again, in that academy space, and then went on to a role with South Sydney Rabbitohs, so head strength and conditioning coach there for a few, and I guess before it was popular for, for I guess, people to get out of SNC, and I... I Got out and, and went in, into academia. So had a role at at Queensland University. So UQ, University of Queensland, which was a combined role as, you know, a traditional academic, but we were also setting up a high performance academy of providing S and C services to, you know, semi elite sporting organizations and, and using the, the practicum students to, to delve into that. BQ had a relationship with with the Brisbane Broncos in in terms of a university partnership, and that provided me with an opportunity to to spend fifty percent of my time at the Broncos in a in a sports science role, which then finished up in twenty seventeen, and then I, I took a role at, at QUT and, and been there essentially as a as a full academic for the last four or so years.
1: Yeah, fantastic, She's What a great range of different experiences. From you know, not only in Australia but around the world, like you said, just had to get out to to get seek those roles. How how much did you sort of think ahead in terms for those, like you mentioned, S&Cs looking that well, might be part time, and they're looking to get their first full time contract. How far ahead did you sort of plan, or how much was it just focusing on the on sort of the present in terms of doing the best job you could to, to uh, opportunities?
0: Look, my goal in that those part time roles, I guess, was I, I really didn't know. Well, I have a particular sport that I wanted to work with because I, I knew I wanted to work with rugby, but the, the opportunities were li- limited. But I really wanted to have an opportunity to, I guess, work with one sport full-time or, or one group of athletes full-time. So when I was at the QAS, for example, that, you know we, we'd have squads come in and out and you, you'd do your best, but it's hard to put everything into lots of different sports at once. So I was always looking for, I guess, that opportunity to have i guess full time athletes and even some of those prior roles are working with academy athletes again they they were they weren't full time so it was yeah tried to to progress to that n- next level
1: and throughout your journey who have been some strong influencers mentors if you like that have helped shape your philosophy
0: yeah I, I guess in the early days probably mentorship wasn't as a popular term but the, the people who influenced me were the other snc coaches that i worked with so probably one of the the, or two key people when I was first starting out were Angus Ross, who's a Kiwi, you know, dual Olympian. He was working at, he was doing his PhD and working at the Queensland Academy of Sport, and, and Lachlan Penfold, who's down in Melbourne with the storm, who lots of people would know. But, but then every role that I took, there were people that influenced me. So, you know, Greg Muller and and Graham Lowe at, in Auckland May the force. Hayden Masters and Brendan Appleby were, were great. And then at the Rabbitohs, I had, Grant Duffy, and then at uh, the Broncos is Ryan Whitley and Jeremy Hickman. So you know, you know, lots of people that influenced me along the way. In terms of a boss, I didn't have a lot of, I guess, S and C bosses. But when I was at the Western Force, we had Kelvin Giles look after you know half a dozen S and C's, and you know, a lot of those, well, all of those people went on to senior roles, and that was a credit to to Kelvin and and his mentorship. I guess,
1: yeah, such a pioneer. He he's been on the podcast, and, and name has definitely been mentioned throughout a lot of episodes so he's made a real impact in the in our industry that's for sure what about some highlights mate the, the sort of you know flash, flash up front of mind when you think back over your career
0: yeah look I, I think sometimes it's important for young SNCs to you know not look to a premiership or something like that because they might you know not that might never happen and the highlights when I was first starting out was developing athletes and seeing them progress so you know I think I don't know, it was about eight years after I was working with Samantha Stoza. She went on and won the US Open. I sort of always joked that I had a hand in that, which I didn't. But, you know, when I was working with her, she went to Junior Wimbledon, for example, and seeing her progress in that was a bit of a highlight. When I was working in the academy spaces, seeing people get full-time contracts or you know getting up to the next level or making their debut, that was always a highlight. But specifically from a team perspective, when I was in Fiji, the the sevens team won the World Cup, and that was pretty special. You know, there's there's two things that Fijians have in their life: religion and rugby. And and to win the World Cup was you know public holiday, tour around the country, pretty exciting. And then. I guess the other thing professionally was I, I worked with some some water skiers, so it was called water ski racing. So we're talking skiing behind a boat to two hundred, two hundred fifty k an hour for an hour. And I worked with Grant Turner and Ben Gully, two awesome athletes that went on to win world championships. And Ben won you know consecutive multiple world championships. And I guess for me that was exciting because it was it was. Not a field-based sport, which was my background. So to be able to try to understand a, a sport that I knew nothing about and then to be able to train people to 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 world champs was was really rewarding.
1: It's actually an interesting one to to delve into a little bit more detail. for for those sNCs taking on a new sport, listening to this podcast, what would be your advice in terms of how to you know whether it be speaking to the athletes to learn how you can support them, but also the tactical side or just learning that, yeah, the, the culture of the sport what would be yeah, your tips to sort of i guess so you can make a real impact straight away yeah
0: yeah that's a great question jack i think and i, I say this to my undergraduate students is don't get caught up in sports specificity is is you know if you know the underlying principles of strength conditioning you should be able to apply them to any sport you just need to then you know put the effort in to go and learn the sport so which is exactly what i did i you know i'm not going to ski behind a boat at 200 k an hour but i went out in a boat and and you know watched them which is quite difficult because again watching someone go past it at 200 k an hour you don't get to see much so the first things i did was you know let's get put heart rate monitors get some idea of you know what are the physical demands of this we did some hydration testing i did some lactate testing just to really see what these people were going through, what athletes were going through. And then I spent probably the first six months in the gym just trying to to, to somewhat recreate what it feels like to ski on the water and, and be pulled by a you know, 80, 90 meter length of rope at those speeds. And, and it probably wasn't until three or four years in that GoPros started to become more popular that I actually got an even better understanding where they put GoPros on themselves and I could see know, what it looks like to ski at those, those speeds and, and mm. see some of the things that I probably hadn't seen. But the key part was really working with the athletes to say, is this what it feels like? And, and then also having an understanding of the physiological underpinnings of the sport. You know, you, you look at something like that and you think it's isometric. And then, you know, I got the first heart rate trace and I was like, these guys are redlining at 95% of their max heart rate. And that's adrenaline, which you don't think about. But you know, it's going to have an impact on, on their performance as well. So getting a real understanding from, from a physiological perspective was really beneficial.
1: And you mentioned, you know, development, strength, conditioning, looking after, you know, the future athletes, as well as then going into head S&C roles where you're looking after the, the first team. And then, at the, you know, just before going the academic side, sports science role, and then being a professor. Like, Did you actively maintain these skill sets, so to the point where you went from S and C for a long period of time to then go into a sports science role at the Broncos where it was an easy transition, or or is it something that you just focused on the S and C and when you got the sports science role, you sort of equipped yourself quickly to be able to do a good job there?
0: No, I don't think it was I don't think it was it was active. I thought all the time as a strength conditioning coach, I was a sports scientist at the same time. I was using evidence, I was recording data, I was using that data. And I guess that was you know one of my approaches was was to 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 use the evidence. So you know I think getting caught up in what's the difference between an SNC and a sports scientist is somewhat dangerous because they can be, you know people can do both roles. so so in terms of transitioning, I think that was reasonably easy. and and it wasn't really a transition. I guess it was just a refocus. at 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 some point in time, it was more of a focus on, the S&C delivery and other times it was more focused on perhaps applying new research to to, to a group to enhance performance, which is w- what we're all trying to do is we're trying to make athletes better. So yeah, yeah I, I don't think there's, I don't think they need to be defined roles. They can be, but it's more just having more of a focus at each point in time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a good insight into how you think about that. I think that there's a bit of learning, certainly for myself, like you can bucket yourself oh, I'm an s and C. I I only do gym roles on field, you know, coaching, however you want to break that. And then the scientist is more analysing and, and you know sitting behind a computer and, and building reports, but you, you, you want to be able to do both. And then being in the academic side, is that how you're preparing the future students that are going to be sports science, training conditioning coaches, that they can lean on both skill sets?
0: Yeah, I, I hope to. You know, one of the things that I'm constantly trying to encourage students to do is think critically. Is you know, come up come up with a question that you wanna you wanna find the answer for, and that's what we do in research. And, and probably a little bit to my detriment is that I'm interested in lots of different things, and you know, some researchers are deliberately just have one research stream, whereas someone will come to me and say, "Oh, I'm interested in this question," and I'm like, "Oh, that's really that's great." I am too, let's go and explore that. So I think if if you're thinking critically, then that can apply to both, both streams of S&C and, and sports science. And, and again, you're thinking critically because you're trying to make, you've got a question that you're hoping to help an athlete be better.
1: And last question before we go to the key topic of resistance priming for, for game day performance, but what about significant challenges, mate, that you have faced over your career and how did you learn or grow from, from, a, from a professional point of view? The,
0: the challenge, which I guess a lot, lots of people experience as job security. So, yeah. you know, I had lots of experiences where teams were performing well, athletes were performing well, athletes were, you know, exceeding physical standards from previous years, but they weren't performing on field or the coach wasn't performing or the coach wasn't well liked. And, you know, being at the end of contract in September and and not having one for the next year or or things like that. So I think that was... That was always a real challenge and, you know, I guess advice or learnings from that, you know, people said to me along the way, try to connect yourself with career coaches and then even in those types of situations, I felt I did, but for whatever reason, teams don't perform. So, you know, I think that's always important that, you know, if you are in those types of roles that you need to, again, be looking ahead a little bit because, the industry's fickle and and things change pretty quickly and 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 sometimes well a lots of the times we hear about people in new jobs before they you know once they're done they were they don't get advertised yeah so probably the key learning that I I guess I try to impart on on my students is that the points around it's not what you know it's who you know and I take that a step further as to say you know it's it's great if I know you know i, I use a practicum student examples is that you might say well i went into melbourne footy club and and i know you know the head of performance well if there's 20 other practicum student practicum students head of performance might forget you in 2 years so the next stage is it's not what you know it's who you know but the next stage who you know it's who knows you so is yeah. that head head of performance and then another step after that is to say it's not who knows you. It's who knows what you know. So if you're a practium student and you're interested in resistance priming, because we're going to talk about it, then you go in and say, "I'm interested in this. I know everything about it. I can provide, you, you know, some some key points or a lit review or some recommendations or whatever it might be." People to talk to that head of performance now knows that 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 practium student knows everything about priming, and if they want to imp- implement priming the next year, and they've got a position in there their system it's it's again it's not who who knows them it's who knows what they know so yeah uh, having an area of expertise but having people know that that's your area of expertise as well
1: and in your experience i think that's great advice particularly for those listening trying to crack in maybe for their first contract or or perhaps be promoted at a particular environment that they're in how do you go about doing that in a you know, respectful manner or not respectful, but in a way that you think, is, you know, conducting yourself in the best way. I
0: think it's providing information. You, you know, you, I go back to the first people we were talking about, Lachlan Penfold. I remember when I was, you know, coming up as an S&C and i would talk to him and, you know, I would find he was working in baseball and I'd find an article on baseball and said, oh, I found this article on baseball, you know, can we discuss it? And he might say, oh, I didn't even know about that one. So I was providing, I oh, guess, yeah. something to that, yeah, that value to that relationship. So, yeah, there, there's, well, obviously we didn't have social media back then, but people can, you know, use social media as, as a vehicle to, to promote some of the areas that they're interested in. So, you, you know, we have lots and lots of people working in S&C, but perhaps not many have a particular skill set in, in one particular area and, and, and I guess having, I guess, a focus that that helps yep, differentiate you from, from someone else.
1: Well, let's dive straight in it's a good segue into resistance priming what is resistance priming and and how is it best conducted on particularly for game day performance
0: great question there's a lot in that resistance priming is essentially the use of of resistance training some form of resistance training with the the goal of enhancing performance now resistance priming typically we see in practice it's there's not a lot of research on it yet but typically we see in practice is is appears as people doing small, typically their power focus sessions either the day of the game. So, if it's a night game, it might be in the morning, or the day before a game potentially. So, and the researchers looked at everything from about six hours to thirty-two hours before some type of physical performance, and and depending on on the mechanism of priming use, there's there's been different outcomes.
1: Yeah, on that, probably another difficult one, but how do you measure the effect that the priming's had on game day? You know, Because ter- obviously there's a lot of, that goes into winning a game of team sport opposed to, I guess, a 100-metre sprint. But for team sport athletes, like how do you sort of work out how effective a six-hour primer was to a 32? And
0: Yeah, awesome question. I don't have an answer for you, unfortunately. Yeah. From a research perspective, really the research has only really looked at jump performance. So typically a resistance training session and what's the the effect on jump performance. There's been a little bit around repeat sprint running, but I guess, you know, the next frontier for us as researchers is to try to make the applications a little bit more applicable to sport. You know, anecdotally, we need to ask athletes, simple question, did did that session in the morning make you feel better before you played the game or during the game? Um, and and that's one of the challenges. We, you know, we had a PhD student Peter Harrison, and I'd, I'd encourage people to to look at Peter's review in in sports medicine on priming because you'll get everything you need. and And our intention initially was for Peter to be embedded in the Brisbane Broncos and to do um, a series of studies in priming, but we just didn't have the evidence to support the interventions yet. And and similarly, we didn't have players that were willing to do it. So if the players aren't yeah. willing to do it, then if they think it's going to be worse for them, then there's no, no way you're going to convince them that it's going to improve their performance. So that's why we have to go back to you know some, some first principle science and, and see if we can get some, some benefits and then look to apply them. So I, I currently have Patrick holmberg who's another PhD student of mine. Again, he's just had a, a review published in Strength and Editioning Journal on priming. So between those two, Peter's and Pat's reviews, people can find everything they need to know. But what Pat's interested in is the influence of, of sprint priming on performance. So we're going from resistance priming, and perform, you know, influencing jump performance, to perhaps looking at a resistant sprint and what that influence might have on on subsequent sprint performance. And, and then if we see something there, then we might be able to say, well, it's going to have more application in any team sport that has sprints in them
1: going to be my next question for those thinking about being priming in how would a when you're putting your plan together for a group it, what are some of the key considerations in terms of like uh, is it age of the athlete is it the sport they're about to play compared to rugby compared to a tennis player you mentioned time night game the duration of the game but like what are some sort of i guess some key considerations do you think that yeah awesome. Take into account?
0: awesome question lots of lots of things to go into there the first thing that we seem to be seeing in the research is that priming has its biggest benefit on well-trained athletes so if you're working with developmental athletes and you're like oh i'm going to do this next best thing it's priming you're probably you're not necessarily wasting your time but your time would be better spent with just developing that athlete the underlying characteristics of that athlete so it's probably m- most beneficial for, for for well-trained strength athletes we're, we're looking at or, or considering. So that's the first thing is is do you actually need it? I guess the next point to be considering is is what is the mode? So and and this is where the word priming sometimes gets used. Well, or it can get confused. So people might go and do a stretch session or uh you know, some type of Tony Schiold cool me activation session, but it's typically just a warm up type session exactly. early in the morning before a game. That's and that could be considered a priming session, but what we're looking at is a, you know resistance priming to enhance performance. So similar to post activation potentiation, we see that the the mode will it should be similar to what what the performance looks like. So what we've seen in the research is top, quite typically. If you do a squat, it's going to have it's going to influence your jump performance because the modes quite similar. So, so if you're an upper body dominant sport, you might not consider squats. For example, you might consider upper body movement. So, mode is the next thing. Timing, as you said, and, and it, typically there's been two two areas that, that people have. So, kind of that thirty two hours, so day and a half before a, a game. So, if you're playing on a Saturday night, it might be, you know, your Friday afternoon lunchtime sort of session. Or the, the game day session and, and which is, you know, six or eight hours potentially before a game or, or, or longer. It might be 12 hours before a game, you know, seven or eight in the morning or eight or nine in the morning before a seven, seven PM game. So the, the, the two things that we're seeing in the research is that there's different responses to those two priming sessions. And that's based around, I guess, the fitness fatigue model that we typically see that the, the game day that, that shorter period is having less impact on fatigue. So people are getting some type of neuromuscular benefit within the day. And and one of the reasons we're seeing that is that on on a game day session, the volume and intensity or the intensity should be quite high. So we're talking sort of 80, 90%. If we're talking squat one RM, for example, we're talking you know, quite a heavy lift early, early morning. But yeah, okay. similarly, with that, the volume needs to be very low. We're talking one to two sets. So these sessions where you know, athletes after warm-up are in and out in 10, 15 minutes, so it's a, it's a really short, sharp, intense session. So whereas the, the game, sorry, the day before game, we see more benefits with a, a moderate or a lighter load. And one of our theories is that if you use that heavier load more than 24 hours, then you get some whether it's it's muscle soreness or neuromuscular fatigue that I guess we don't see in that that short time
1: period. Yeah. So that, with that, it's eighty ninety percent of their one rep max, like a heavy lift, opposed to velocity based.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it's it's both. Yeah. So another key consideration is that there needs to be intent. So. Yep. But yeah, as opposed to a thirty or forty percent yeah velocity, you know, trying trying to hit a high velocity movement, it's it's really a high load stimulus. But but it's got to be combined with intent. So uh, again, that that seems to be starting to appear in the literature that you know you've really got to be focused on on speed of movement, even though the load's quite
1: high. And yeah, thank you for that. That's a lot of good detail for for practitioners to take into account when when planning their sessions. What are, what are some, like you mentioned, how developing athletes, it might not be that effective compared to trained athletes. What are some other common mistakes the witnessed, heard about, or, or yeah, that you think SCs can potentially make in this space when we're bringing in primer sessions on game day or the day before?
0: Yeah, really good question. Pete Harrison did a survey, which has also been published on, I guess, the different types of sessions that that people have been using. And then Pat's taken that work and he's just in the process of writing up a study now where he interviewed about 35-ish C coaches from the professional sport and the Academy and Institute Network in Australia. And what we find there is there's a, a massive mixture. And probably the majority of them aren't doing any of the thing that's evidence based. So they're doing this, you know, wide range of things, you know, based on perhaps a little bit of guesswork or on athlete feel. So some of the mistakes that we're seeing is you know perhaps going too heavy if they're doing a day before session or they're not going heavy enough to actually get some benefit the the day of. Now they still may be getting benefit with their athletes. I'm I'm not saying they're doing the wrong thing, but in terms of I guess what the literature is showing us, typically we're seeing not heavy enough, or on on game day if they're doing it game day, or too heavy the the day before. And then the third thing is volume. We're just seeing too much volume, uh, yeah. and again, we, go back to that very rudimentary fitness fatigue. Um, they may just be making their athletes a little bit more tired. We don't really know, but yeah, some, something that we're trying to find some answers for to provide more evidence to people. So because it's so new, people hear, oh yeah, this team's doing that or this club's doing that. Let's let's. You know, go and have a look at this, and and because there's the the literature quite new as well. You know, people tend to 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 jump on a bandwagon a bit quickly and and, and not really know everything about it. So we're we're trying to help with that, and and certainly I'd, I'd encourage people those those two review papers because that will really help give some insight.
1: Yeah, we'll have to. Find the links and we'll have it in the show notes. I can
0: provide them for you, Jack. That's easy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Perfect. Thanks, Vince. In terms of practical advice, a selection, if the volume is low and you're going high intensity on game day, I imagine familiarization with the movement's pretty important. And then what about range of motion and then tempo? Like, is it isotonic movements? Is it isometrics? Like, talk us through. Is that individualized to the athlete on personal preference? Yeah, those sort of, I guess, nuances.
0: Yeah, you've, you've asked lots of different questions there. <laughs> yes. So because they're experienced athletes, then you, you'd be picking movements that those athletes are well-equipped to do. We've got a study that's in second review that we've looked at isometric and low load, and we found very little benefit. You know, watch this space. Hopefully it gets accepted soon, but we, we don't seem to think there's anything in the isometric space. So, yeah, mm-hmm. typically it, it it is an isotype movement. So like I said, the majority have picked squats or a jump squat, but typically squat. And again, that's because they've gone to the simple route of what can we see benefit in and a jump squat or a counter-movement jump is, is, is an easy test. That's what we're trying to go a little bit further. We've had some discussions, for example, with Queensland cricket around bowling speed, and, and that'd be really a really nice study to perform is you know, let's have a look at some performance outcome because bowling speed is a, is a key metric for those guys. And, and, you know, can we, can, can priming imp- improve that? And, that? and that'd be, that's, that's the next stage, I guess, after we, we have a look at some of this sprint stuff to see if, you know, can we actually improve sprint performance as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was something that just sort of crossed my mind. I was thinking of like, if we're measuring, a perfective primer session is the improved on a force plate jump potentially doing a squat you know are you just improving their ability to do that test opposed to performance but then sprinting for team-based athletes that's a little bit more relevant if you can improve their ability to move faster you'd have to say that's pretty specific
0: yeah and and look jack the benefits are quite small we're talking Two, three, maybe if you're lucky, five percent. So, what's really important is the last question that you ask is athlete preference, because you know yourself working with athletes. If you're trying to get them to do something that they don't believe in, then 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 they're never going to put effort into it, and then they were going to get the benefit out of it. So there, there needs to be some component of that, and, and we're trying to include that in our research now. Just from you know qualitative survey, or just just a, a key question. You know, do you did you feel more powerful? Did you feel better? What was your preference of of self so We we're we're offering participants three different loads, for example. We're interested in in is there a relationship between their preference and and their outcome, and if so. It might we might be not doing priming research in the future. it's just a placebo that makes whatever yeah. athlete makes the athlete feel good, get them to do that in the morning, which is fine as well. I don't have yeah. a problem with that and I challenge all my students as like, let's let's prove all this stuff wrong like if it's if it doesn't exist then then that's fine. Let's not waste people's time but, but I think personal preference is really important when we're dealing with athletes.
1: Yeah because you've got to have that high intensity like you said the intent needs to be. There, yep. yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then from a, I guess, from a prescription point of view, when you're starting to bring it in, you mentioned volume. So when we, you know, let's say, we're doing the box squat, are we are we countering that with a with a counter movement jump for contrast effect? And and you're counting those of, of you know 80% box squat one set the same as a four rep counter movement body weight jump, or are they two different things in terms of total volume? Like how do you consider? Is it all right? We're going to do four sets. That's your your, your baseline with your heavy lifting. And then you can do eight sets of your your dynamic, and then how do you throw in upper body? You know, so when, when we're trying to plan a session, how many yeah. exercises would you stick to? And yeah. um,
0: great question. We don't really know the answer yet. What what Pat did in his review was looked at just volume load, so typical calculation of of volume load and arbitrary loads, and, and his review details. You, you know what sort of sort of loads that you'd be looking for. So we're we're talking you know in the five. 500s, I think for memory paddle correct me if I'm wrong, but you know that the sessions that are in the thousands or a couple of thousands that's when we're not I guess seeing as great a benefit. so it's really I mean it's a it's it's a pretty hard question to answer because it's going to be so dependent on your athletes and you know I always tell my students answer questions with it depends because it, it really does depend on your athlete and your 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 sport, but I think you'd be safe in you know keeping your one to two sets of, of of exercises rather than you know, three to four and, and again, the more exercises you add in, the more load you're gonna be putting through your athlete.
1: Okay. Yeah. So you hit the work up to that eighty to ninety percent. You do a you know, one set at let's say eighty percent, a few reps there. And then, you know, last set is at the eighty five or ninety if they're moving well and getting good speed on the bar.
0: And and again, you know, we think that's gonna help jump performance, but that's all we know at this point in time.
1: For sure. Sure. Yeah. And then what about from the sprinting side? Resistant sprinting, I think you mentioned so sled using chains, if the bands sort of come under that. How do we consider these different stimuluses when
0: Yeah? Well, if you had a rich club, get yourself a 1080 sprint, because that's what we're looking at. So we're yeah. we're gonna have, I guess, a lot more control over the the level of resistance that we can use. But some of the calculations within the 1080 are deliberately done to try to replicate. Sleds as well. So, I guess that's what we're in these initial stages interested in uh, a low, a moderate, and a high resistance sprint. And and what are they going to be the impacts of those three things? And then, similarly, we're asking athletes what's their preference because talking to some athletics coaches, they say, Oh, we have some. There's a jump coach, for example. He says, Some of my athletes, they like to have a heavy. Heavy primer. Others like to feel fast and 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 uh, sleep footed. So uh, again, we're going to try to tease out those things. Um, yeah. I guess with all of those things, you, you know, if you're thinking of a band resistance, yeah. My question then is, how how are you measuring that resistance? So if uh, at least if if you the the worst thing you can have is a sled. You can at least have some percentage of body weight that you might be uh, looking towards, but. Watch this space because we don't have any answers yet. And
1: with the, from an anecdotal point of view, you mentioned like some prefer the dynamic and some prefer more the the force based heavy lifting. Is that like when you're noticing that and, and seeing practitioners take on these sessions, is that a little bit depending on their profile? Like in terms of maybe they're more of an explosive based athlete, they play that way compared to your stronger, more contested type players?
0: Yeah, possibly. Hard to say, though. Yeah. Just, yeah, I don't have enough information to to conclusively say. But it would make sense that, yeah, if you think that that's more of a, you know, an aer- aerobic slow twitch person or, a, you know, if you've got a, a PE type 2 person that that they might prefer, you know, less resistance, for example, but don't really know yet.
1: And what about priming for like aerobic benefits? Is there research that you're aware of?
0: There's a little bit, but we haven't really looked into that, that space. Typically, we're looking at just focusing on, on resistance training for, for a power outputs.
1: And then for the developing athletes listening in that are excited to give this a go on their next football performance day and they've got maybe a garage gym set up, what would be your recommendation to for just a basic session?
0: Well, before, and this is what Pat will keep, you know, Pat's got 20 years experience in the US college system. He always brings it back to, well, what have you done in the week leading up? And if you've done all your sessions leading up to it and you've been training consistently for 12, 18, 24 months, then perhaps you might consider a, a priming session. Then you've also got to consider, you know, when the next game is. So if you're in some type of tournament tournament, You'd be silly to do priming because you're probably just going to induce more fatigue. But if if you have if you've ticked all those boxes, you you, you know you you've got a, a nice strength base behind you. I think you couldn't go wrong with two to three sets of of two to three reps of of a, of a squad at eighty nine ninety percent on on game day, and, and that's it. Walk away feeling good about yourself. Yep.
1: Okay, but, yeah. Okay. So just pick the one exercise. And how long rest would they have in between sets, roughly, or is that just a feel?
0: Oh, you know, typically three to five minutes. Again, let's go back to first principle science, replenish those phosphocreatine stores and and get yourself going again, yeah.
1: And if they do want to improve their, like, fend-off ability or or tackling and ripping people to the ground, the the upper body side of things, what's your go-to there?
0: again that's another paper that we've got in review from Peter Harrison's work he looked at bench throw and a bench pull well, an explosive or a, a high intent bench pull we didn't see anything outstanding there we didn't see a massive benefit there were some limitations to the study but if it's if it's a fend off let's go back to those you know mode mode specific so a bench press or you yeah, probably a backyard versus not going to have a smith machine maybe maybe they are but bench press or red stroke. I, I think with that same loading and, and the key thing, which I'll keep harping on is intent. It's got to be done with, with some fast intent.
1: That's a fair bit of information champ-packed there. So we'll definitely add those links in for those that want to find in more information and have a read. It sounds like there has been some excellent work there from some PhD students that you're supervising. We'll, we'll move on to the last part of the the podcast, mate. Do you have a pet peeve or anything that fires you up in the industry or yeah, anything that... Makes you angry.
0: I'm a pretty casual person. I guess some of my pet peeves I had to think hard about this one. My my pet peeves are people believing that there is one specific way to enhance something. So, you know, I I learned very early on in the industry that in the NRL, for example, we had sixteen other SNC coaches. We were all doing different programs and we were all being competitive against each other. So no one way is the right way. So I guess that's my pet peeve is, is people jumping on a bandwagon of one system or method or whatever it might be and saying, well, this, it's this way or the only way, which is just wrong because we have individuals who respond differently, who may not respond to some of those things, and it's not suitable for every, everyone. Whatever, whatever you have is not going to be suitable to every population, and that comes back to that. It depends answer. That system might work for one particular group of athletes at one particular time of the year, but even in that space, it shouldn't be working twelve months of the year because there's different things you need at different times of the year. so that that I guess that's my pet beavers. Is... What about your favorite way to spend your bee? Yeah, don't have a lot of days off, but I guess my weekends are spent at kids' sport, so i I do enjoy going to watch my kids play sport and my crazy new hobby is beekeeping. so I get into a beehive and uh, get some honey in, in summer and uh, share it with friends and family. So that that's, uh, that's nice as long as you don't get stung. How did you fall into that one? I think natural progression of being a, a green thumb and having a bit of a garden and then getting some chooks and then it's like, well, what what can I do next? And there's there's new types of beehives that you can get that make it pretty easy to to keep bees. And who doesn't like honey? So I, I, I gave that a go.
1: It's a bit of a... um. Off topic, but actually I was speaking to a friend who was thinking about doing it. And My first question was, oh, do you need a license for something like that? What is the setup?
0: Oh, you need to register usually with the state body. But apart from that, it's just like owning a dog. You go out and and, uh, and buy what's called a nucleus of bees and then look after them.
1: And then we're obviously in December or 1st of December, but... What's on the horizon for 22 and what are you most excited about for what 2023 looks like for you?
0: rest of the year is, well, we've just got grades in for students, so we've got an opportunity to get back in, into the, the research students. We've got a, a couple of papers that we're, we're winding up to 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 submit across a, a few different areas and then 2023 I guess is uh, getting some continuing the, the the research in in those spaces I've got a new new student coming on board where we're going to look at some custom designed compression garments and whether they uh, are are going to be any more beneficial than your off the shelf brand so there's a company that worked with with NASA and and they do individual compression garments and we're going to have a look at whether they are any better than, than your off-the-shelf compression garments, So that, that a new, new series of studies in, the, in a new space. Hopefully, will be something exciting.
1: Absolutely. It's uh, providing some great content for us both from a performance point of view but now recovery as well, which obviously they go hand-in-hand. Hand, but, yeah, great to see the research that's being done and supervised by yourself, mate. Thank you so much for, for jumping on and sharing with us insights in terms of resistance priming, like I mentioned off air. It's something that I've definitely noticed in, in the AFL. It's lent on, you know, rugby that's been doing it for probably a fair bit longer, And no doubt there's a lot of other sports that are doing it from a training point of view. And and I'm I'm sure with the research that's coming out now, it looks like game day performance, I mean Captain's Day does seem to be in there for some clubs the day before, but I haven't heard of any doing it on the morning of, but no doubt that there's going to be some I'm giving it a go soon. So it'll be interesting to see watch this space performance point of view. But yeah, thank you so much for jumping on. For anyone that has any follow-up questions, Vince, where's the best place to get in contact in terms of socials or is it- Oh, any, any of the
0: above. You can find my, my email on the QET profile or, or happy to share it or for you yep. to share it, Jack. Sure. I am on Twitter, Vince Kelly Sport, and then LinkedIn. I Twitter's going a bit funny at the moment, so we can write a bit more volume on LinkedIn, on LinkedIn. and tell the story a bit better. So yeah, yeah. Okay. So happy for people to reach out if they've got questions on any of that stuff.
1: Fantastic. Now, we'll make sure to add those links in the show notes. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you tuned in halfway through, make sure to listen to the very start so we get a good background and context on Vixen's journey in elite sport and academia. Uh, That will live on our YouTube channel for the time being, and we'll publish it on our podcast in the next coming weeks. Our next live chat is with Nathan Spencer. That's on the 15th of December at 1 p.m. So I'll see you guys then. Thanks again, Vince. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that that fire you up? Oh,
2: this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane and I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game
1: changes, we feel like yeah, game game
2: changes change. whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete
1: for. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the strength and conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks really, with awesome. us. So he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll hand it over to you, Rama, to, to ask your question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there. Um, And I enjoyed it a lot. Mate, my my question to you was, you spoke quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat. Um, And I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did
3: uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, What are some of those things? Yeah. Good question. Um, yeah. So I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much, um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spend a lot of my time, um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts,